Welcome to Doctor Informed, brought to you by the BMJ, made in collaboration with this institute and sponsored by Medical Protection. Doctor Informed aims to take you beyond medical knowledge. We're talking about all those things that you need to be a good doctor, but which don't necessarily involve medicine. I'm Clara Monroe. I'm a surgical registrar in the northeast of England, and I'm also a clinical editor here at the BMJ. In this episode, we're going to be talking about blame, how it gets attributed when something goes wrong, how destructive it can be to creating all the space for improvement we've been talking about over this series, and how we can foster cultures that don't focus on whose fault it is. To discuss that, I'm joined by a new co-host, Those of you who've been paying close attention might have wondered what happened to Jenny who appeared in our trailer. Unfortunately, Jenny's not been able to join us for the recordings, but very kindly her colleague Graham has agreed to step into the breach and help guide us through some of these complexities. Graham, could I get you to introduce yourself to our listeners? Hi, yes, I'm Graham Martin. Um, I'm Director of Research at this institute, the Healthcare Improvement Studies Institute. And yeah, looking forward to working with you for the next few episodes. Um, it's really nice to have you on today because I feel like you'll give us a sort of theoretical understanding of some of the concepts that we apply when we talk about blame. Um, and there's some some terms that I think are often used when we talk about blame that maybe some of our listeners won't be familiar with. Um, I guess the one that I immediately springs to mind for me is psychological safety. Um, and I wonder if you might just touch on uh, your understanding or provide a bit of an explanation on what psychological safety might be. Yeah, so psychological safety is really above all about um, how teams work with each other. And in particular, whether a team encourages people to speak up, to challenge, to try to improve what's going on, or whether anything that dissents or challenges or suggests that things aren't quite right um, is something that's suppressed by that team. So um, in some ways it has a lot in common with, you know, sort of organisational notions of openness. But I think what's distinctive about psychological safety is that it's particularly thought about at the team level. So, you know, sometimes you can have an organisation that says, lots of good things about openness but when you get down to the level of the team there's you know key people within it perhaps senior people perhaps the team leaders who really don't reflect that um in practice at all and of course if you're in a team like that where you know the the culture is not to speak up the culture is to keep your head down and hope you don't get noticed because if you do get noticed you're going to get picked up for it and you're going to get you know mocked for it or even punished for it I think one of the things that I found really interesting when I first was reading about psychological safety, and obviously you can't talk about psychological safety without talking about Amy Edmondson, um, was the idea that when she looked at um, teams where they were reporting lots and lots of errors, those were actually the most psychologically safe teams, which I think to many people might seem paradoxical in that um, you think, well, why are they, you know, why are they making loads of errors? Well, they're not. They just feel able to report them and learn from them. Um, I think going back to the idea of blame, I think obviously doctors, for when we think about blame, we think about, you know, uh, the GMC and court hearings and inquests and, um, you know, getting our professional licences taken away. Um, And I think that that's probably quite an sort of an archaic understanding of blame. Um, in terms of research and, and the way that you guys look at blame, um, 
from a health research point of view, is that always as negative as, as we as we present it to ourselves? I think what you've said there um, captures it quite well, actually. It's certainly the most visible or the most prominent part of blame. Um, sometimes it doesn't happen that often, but sometimes you are in a situation where doctors or other healthcare professionals are hauled up in front of their professional regulator. Uh, sometimes they're struck off and sometimes they're even criminally prosecuted. And I think that's one of the, you know, the biggest fears, what you've just said, it that, that sticks in the minds of, of healthcare practitioners in terms of you know, the risks of practice in general and, and the possibility of getting blamed for something that's happening. Um, I think a lot of blame goes on below the surface as well. So it's it's not just those really big events that hopefully, you know, in the course of a career, you will very rarely, if at all, have to encounter. It's also much more, um, you know, prosaic things um, in terms of relationships within teams. So, uh, comes back to the point about psychological safety. If people are fearful that the moment that they raise a concern about something, either they themselves or a colleague is going to get blamed for it, then they're much less likely uh, to speak up about that. And therefore, the team and the rest of the organisation is much less likely to learn about it. So it manifests at these various levels. It's not just about the really, really big ticket things. It's much more. It's also much more about the the day to day things. And you know, we shouldn't underestimate the impact of those, particularly for people who are junior, on their day to day lives and their careers and all the rest of it. So blame has that kind of chilling effect, or can have that kind of chilling effect on what um, people are prepared to do, um, and. If it is just about blame, if it is just about pinning um, uh, responsibility for someone for, for something that's gone wrong on, on the most obvious person, the most obvious candidate to take the blame for that, then not only is that very bad for the individual, it's not good for the organisation either, because it's very rare um, that something is really that simple, particularly in healthcare. These mm. are complex um, organisations, and usually there is something underlying that. There are systems that could be made better that could have helped that person not to make the mistake in the first place. So blame is unhelpful if, if, if it's all you're looking for, because it means you're not looking below the surface beyond those superficial immediate problems to what the latent conditions are that allow that active uh, failure to take place. So I think this is probably going to be a good point to go to our first interview with Joe Wright. Joe's a midwife who's been practically applying some of these principles for years and has some really great advice on how to implement them. That'll be coming up after this from our sponsor. At Medical Protection, we know better than anyone the ups and downs that hospital doctors face today. 125 years ago, we were started by doctors for doctors, and that same doctor-to-doctor experience still sets us apart in supporting our members. We go above and beyond the NHS scheme that only covers you for damages from negligence claims giving you the right to request assistance if your clinical practice is called into question by the GMC or your employer. We can help with responding to and resolving patient complaints. And our host of risk management resources help you stay on top of your game. Then there's our 24-7 medico-legal advice line, which you can call as many times as you like without it affecting what you pay for protection. If you're a consultant solely working in the NHS, that price is just £549. We can do all of this because we're a member-owned, not-for-profit organisation where every decision we make is to benefit our members. Isn't it time to get protected and practice with confidence? Join today 
at medicalprotection.org uk. Now, back to my interview with Joe. So uh, my name is Joel Wright. Um, I'm a uh, Deputy Director of Midwifery, Gynaecology and Sexual Health um, in the West Midlands at Walsall Manor Hospital. Um, previous to that, um, I've been in, in um, maternity services now for 22 years. So previously, I was a consultant midwife for six years. Um, and that sort of looks at research, um, audits, clinical practice, leadership type roles. Prior to that, I was a matron um, on the delivery suite as well uh, for six years. And prior to that, I was a delivery suite sister for a number of years. And I had a short period as a nurse in gynaecology as well. Um, and at the moment, yeah, I'm in maternity and loving it. So <laughs> That's amazing. You've lived a thousand lives. <laughs> well, you know, I actually, when I left my job as a, a delivery suite sister, I did ask the question, how many babies had I delivered? Um, I asked them to re- pull it out, pull the data out for me. And they told me I delivered a thousand babies. And that was in 2011. So I don't know what's happened since then. I, I didn't ask. I'm not asking anymore. <laughs> Lost track of the numbers after that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's, I'm really glad that we've um, managed to have a chat with you today. One of the things we've been talking about on this episode is psychological safety, blame culture, just culture. I think in recent years, obviously, there's been a huge spotlight uh, shone on maternity services, not always for good reasons, unfortunately. And I think I'm really interested to hear your view on how you create a sort of a department, a unit, a team where you can call, you know, I suppose, call out problems, but without creating this really toxic culture of blame and and, um, finger pointing. Yeah. So I... I this is something that I've thought a lot about. When you've acknowledged that something's gone wrong, the immediate thing is, why did that something go wrong? And the easy thing to do is to say that, well, that person was there, they did it, so that's why it went wrong. Mm-hmm. So that is your classic blame culture. We've got to think about, break it down, what does blame culture do to an, an individual and an organisation? Blame culture for an individual is devastating. Whether you did something or you didn't, and you, and when you, by that, I mean whether you were at fault or not, and you are blamed, the reaction is going to be the same for you in that you have to start, you start questioning yourself. The fear factor cannot be underestimated when you are blamed for something. It will affect the way that you practice after that you are probably more likely to make a mistake because you're mm-hmm. so frightened of making a mistake. You'll make a mistake. You feel that everybody's talking about you. You feel everybody's watching you. You feel whispering campaigns are happening about you. So that's what happens to the individual. Then when you look at the organisation, what happens to the organisation? If I see my colleague being treated in a certain way when they are being blamed for something, that's going to make me retract a little bit. That might make me not speak up as much as I did before. That may, might make me become quite um, defensive in my practice as well. Mm-hmm. So what's the end result of that? The end result of 
individual, the organisation is, how is that woman at the end of it in maternity services, I'm using the example of maternity services, how is that woman going to be treated at the end of it? So again, this is where our defensiveness might come in, in that we overtreat because we're concerned that if we don't overtreat and something happens, we're going to get the blame. We undertreat because we're frightened of doing something that might cause a problem. We might speak to the woman in a certain way, very paternalistic, um, very authoritarian, because you want her to do what you want her to do. And then, therefore, you diminish the choice elements of what she may receive. So as you can see, the individual, the organisation, the woman are affected by blame. Um, something that we... Um, we need to be very mindful of um, when we're looking at how um, people are treated following an incident or a concern is how professional groups um, react again. So um, I'll give the example of if we look at um, some of the incidents that ha the, the, the concerns that have happened in maternity services recently. Um, I'm not going to say the names of the hospitals because sometimes that in itself, hearing your hospital mm -hmm. spoken about all the time can, can be very upsetting. So I won't name mm -hmm. hospitals here, but several uh, maternity units that have come to the attention of the national media. And within that media, there's a very much a focus on midwives. And what happens, what does that do to an organisation? It can make the organisation feel that it is a problem with just midwives or it, with one professional group, whereas it cannot be an issue with one professional group. So you might get individual professional groups separating and retreating from each other because they do not want to be associated with the blame, with the with the negative press around that group. In a good organisation, what you find is professional groups will come together. And by a good organisation, I mean a good culture. Those groups will come together and they will work together and they will support each other. In organisations where the culture is probably not as, um, as 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 robust as we would like, you'll get retreating. You'll get people um, not wanting to be involved. Mm -hmm. We've been looking at a lot of ways um, how we can sort of resolve that initial feeling of blame and, and try and remove that. And I know within organisations that I've worked in, we've been striving, and I'll definitely say in the last few years, to have a more just culture so that people feel that what am I judging your my concern and error and incident on? There needs to be transparency in how I am being judged by what I have done. And a just culture provides that because it provides a framework for people to actually look at what has happened. So I'll give an example. Um, say there was a poor outcome for a neonate on the delivery suites. Within a just culture framework, we would look at, say, is that a mistake? Was a mistake made? If it was a simple mistake, yes, it's still a poor outcome, but it wasn't deliberate intentional harm. Mm -hmm. Then we probably look at, well, okay, so it, it wasn't quite a mistake, but that person didn't follow a guideline or a policy. So there's, there's, some, there's some kind of accountability there, but we have to find out why didn't you follow that guideline or policy? Was it easier not to do so? 
Was it that you were doing your nice workarounds that make your working life a lot easier? Then therefore we need to look at our processes. So that's the second tier. So again, I'm looking at you and I'm thinking, why have you done what you have done? So my third level is you are just reckless and you did something that you should never have done. You knew it was dangerous. I'm going to treat you completely differently than I'm going to treat somebody who's made a mistake. Mm-hmm. And this is where I think we need to get this the balance right and use a just culture because that will remove the fear factor. And once you've removed the fear factor around a concern and an incident, you will get truth. And until you get truth, you cannot get change. So that is the, one of the most important things. Picking up on the other thing that you said about um, when you have a poor outcome or, or something goes wrong, that, I, I don't know, that kind of, I think I, I've definitely seen it in my practice where something has gone wrong and there's this almost need to segregate people into groups like, well, us doctors did this and you nurses did this and the midwife said X, Y and Z. Um, and, you know, I think we've all seen probably got examples on varying levels of how damaging that can be in terms of team working because you cannot work as one group of, of professional individuals. What kind of strategies do you think that we can implement either as individuals or within departments to make sure that that doesn't happen when things go wrong? So within our my um, current trust now, uh, I joined this trust about three, four months ago, and I, I saw it in my last trust. When something goes wrong or if there's a concern or anything like that, we're trying to move away from statements, this mm-hmm. statement writing culture. You actually need to get the people who are involved in a room together so they can talk about actually what happened. I don't want, I did this, and I don't want a piece of paper that says I did this and then I did this. I want to hear in a room, oh, Joe, do you remember you went and picked this up because I asked you to, and then I did this because you did that, and then this is why this happened. I need we so when we're looking at things, we need content, we need context. You don't get context really from a piece of paper, a written piece of paper in front of you in the form of a statement. You get context when you get people, what we call we call them round tables, um, following anything that's happened. You get the context of actually what happened and why it happened. And we involve everybody in that round table. Because I can tell you an, an example, of, you know, we had a really quite poor incident that happened on the ward. Um, this was a few years ago in my last trust. And everybody was saying this and this and this happened. And it was the housekeeper who saw what really happened. And she was able to tell us what had happened. And if she hadn't have been there, and then everybody else then fell in and said, yeah, because she was lying like this. And I couldn't understand why she was like that. But it was, and it, it just brought it all together. reflecting on that interview the thing that I've gone back to time and time again is um Joe's point about the difference between the effect on the individual but also the effect on the organization um of blame so she talks about effects on individuals you know you end up over or under treating people um but I think one of the concepts I'd never really considered before is how you might become more paternalistic with your patients um 
And, you know, she uses the example of you need to do this because if you don't, X, Y, Z. Um, and being very didactic in, you know, the way that you, you tell patients what to do, which I, I thought was quite interesting. Um, is that something that you see maybe even, you know, within healthcare organisations, but other organisations as well, um, where people change their individual practice and the way that they are with their patients when there is a blame culture existing? Yeah, I thought I thought that the points that Joe made about defensiveness were really, really interesting. And, you know, what what she made clear there was that none of this is something that improves practice. It's actually going to make practice worse, whether that's under treatment, over treatment, paternalistic attitudes towards patients, um, less uh, willingness to voice concerns, uh, to mm. try to, to gain improvements or whatever else. And I think, you know, that's exactly what we see when a culture focuses on blame alone. Joe mentions just culture. Now, my immediate thought was just culture. Is that not, is that just the same as no blame culture? Um, my, maybe it'd be helpful if you could sort of explain if, if, if they're the same thing or if they're different and how they're different. Yeah, I think they're subtly different. And in a way, just culture is perhaps an evolution of the idea of no blame culture. Mm. So no blame culture was certainly something that was talked about as a response to blame culture, and particularly a response to all the, the problems that we've already talked about that are associated with blame culture. No blame culture has got a lot going for it because it does try to refocus on the system. But there have been criticisms of no blame culture as well, not least because actually in a complex organisation like healthcare, yeah, sure, the practitioner isn't the only person who's involved here. The doctor isn't responsible for everything that goes on, but they do play a really important mm. part in it. And actually, you know, for a good, well-functioning healthcare system, we need to have doctors and nurses who are professional, who are, you know, on top of their game. Of course, they're going to make mistakes from every now and again. They are human. Everyone makes mistakes. But on the other hand, if we simply say, you know, it's the system what's to blame almost, then um, we're missing a really important part of healthcare. So the idea of just culture shifts the focus a little bit away. So it doesn't say that blame is always inappropriate. It probably wouldn't use the terminology of blame, but it would use the terminology of accountability. And what it would emphasise in particular is that there are acts that are not blameworthy, because simply, you know, someone was the victim of circumstance. There are acts that are blameworthy. In an extreme sense, it might be where someone is operating with malign intent, or it might just be that someone is, you know, operating slightly negligently, operating outside their uh, competence or, you know, refusing to take on board training or whatever else. Of course, there's lots of continuum between that and really to, to put a just culture effectively into practice, you need to be attuned to all of those, um, all of that grey area. And I think that's what Joe was getting at with some of what she was discussing about the kinds of questions she asks of her colleagues when things have gone wrong. So what a just culture would say is that, yeah, absolutely, you need to account for the situation. You need to account for the circumstances. Were there extra pressures that day? How well was the individual who is, you know, who was involved in the incident being supported? Were they on their own? Uh, were they being let down by colleagues? Were there was, was there something about the situation that was something they simply couldn't expect had they been appropriately trained? So it would take all of those things into account, but it would also take into account, you know, the fact that we should expect high standards of healthcare professionals. And based on all of those facts, it would try to come up with um, a response that is appropriate to the situation. Really, really difficult, of course, to... Um, kind of set up prescriptions for how a process like that will go because every case is going to be different. So it's difficult to put into practice, but that's the kind of the basis of the idea of a just culture. Mm. 
I think, yeah, that really makes sense to me. I, I think sometimes as a as a trainee, um, you can sometimes look around and think, is it just luck when people get held accountable for things? And I think that idea of justness and responsibility is obviously really important. And, you know, again, going back to Joe's point about how she always asks why. So, okay, yeah, there are those people that are a bit sloppy, maybe cutting corners. Why are they doing that? Is it because is it because they're the bad doctors or is it because the guideline is there is making their job harder and they don't see the purpose of it? Um, I think that's exactly right. I mean, I think you, you've, you've hit the nail on the head there really in talking about luck and what a just culture would try to do is just perhaps start to take some of that arbitrariness that can characterise a blame culture out of it so that it becomes less a matter of that person, you know, was in the wrong place at the wrong time yeah. and more a matter of taking real account of, of what was going on in that place and at that time. So just culture is partly about the process, about, you know, operating in a way that is justifiable, that um, accounts for all of these things. The other key part of a just culture, which is less about, you know, what you do when something goes wrong and much more about what you do to try to create a situation where things are less likely to go wrong, the other part of it is that it attends to those organisational responsibilities. So if, you know, you're working in a functioning organisation where there are good systems and processes that, that help you as a healthcare professional rather than hindering you, where the, the, the standard operating procedures, the pathways, the protocols, etc., are easy to understand, they make sense, they don't incentivize you to cut corners to try to, to get through the workload, the workload is manageable, the support is in place, all of those kinds of things, then that's an organization that's doing what it can to support you. And actually that's an organization in which a just culture is much more possible because if those things are in place, then when things go wrong, of course, you know, they're investigated appropriately and, you know, all of those contextual factors are taken into account. But if you can say the organisation has at least done what it can to make it easier for you as, as a doctor or a nurse or any other healthcare professional to do the right thing, then blame becomes less arbitrary. And, you know, it's still possible that um, people do things and they, they you know, they, they didn't have any responsibility for them whatsoever. But actually, you know, that there's there's some kind of you can see the logic behind accountability in a situation like that because at least the organisation has done what it can to, to support you rather than just dropping you in the deep end and saying, oh, sorry, that was your fault when someone is harmed. I think um, listening to you talk about that makes me think a lot about the Daytech system that we use in the UK. Um, and I've thought a huge amount about this because, you know, how do you create a system where we can report errors or mistakes that are made hold people accountable and responsible, but also examine the system problems that make those, you know, that, that allow those errors to exist. And I do sometimes think, you know, Daytex often gets used as a threat. It gets used to generate fear um, within clinicians. You know, if you don't do this, I'll Daytex you or, um, oh, we should Daytex this. Oh, no, please don't do that because if you do that, someone's going to tell me off. You know, it, it, that, it, it's that kind of culture. So I think, you know, most healthcare organisations are going to have parts of them or are going to have times when it feels a little bit like that. Probably what distinguishes healthcare organisations that have a more positive culture and perhaps a more just culture is that... You know, there's at least plenty of um, encouragement to view Datix uh, instance reporting all of these kinds of tools, not as a means of punishment, but as a means of learning, which, as I say, is mm. kind of true to the original intention. 
easier said than done. And the thing is that, you know, it's going to vary even within a healthcare organisation, let alone between them. But, you know, it comes down to the standards and the expectations set by organisational leadership. It also comes down to how people use that tool in practice. And you will find sometimes people report themselves in inverted commas or, you know, use Datex to report incidents that they were centrally involved in. And, you know, essentially role modeling that behavior that this is about learning, that something has gone wrong here. I'm not saying that I'm necessarily to blame. I may well not be to blame, but this is worth trying to get to the bottom of. This is worth investigating. This is worth learning from. Mm. I think the other thing that um, Joe talked about um, that's really stuck with me is the way that she has started to approach incident um incident investigation in in her trust so the incident is reported okay so let's say it's a serious untoward incident and they're going to start investigating it um in every organization or of every team that i've worked in any hostel that i've worked in if a, a sui a serious unreported uh, serious untoward incident um is reported everybody is encouraged to go away and write a very legally worded letter um that inevitably ends up being very defensive um and you know i think joe's example of getting everybody in a room and talking things through to really work out what happened um and going back to the concept of voice that mary dixon woods talked about um i thought that that was incredibly powerful and you know instead of everybody defending themselves it's let's all actually get to the bottom of what happened have you seen any examples of this or any evidence of where that's that sort of um that sort of approach has really worked. Yeah, I mean, I thought that was really fascinating for a number of reasons. Um, and one is, you know, like you say, once it gets down to statements, then it becomes a matter of he said, she said, and it's, you know, accountability is writ large in what's written down. And, you know, the moment that people commit things to paper, of course, they, they may well be trying to be truthful, but they're very conscious of how things on that paper might be used in future. I think the other thing that was really interesting there was that, um, you know, quite often, people's recollections genuinely will differ and actually it takes more than one person it takes all the people who are in the room at the time of it to make sense of it collectively so there's something about that dialogue actually that is really important to, to getting to the bottom of what happened i think the challenges of doing that kind of thing um uh, regularly are several so for one thing it's obviously very time consuming it takes real commitment leadership mm. and wanting to make the most of these incidents to to improve quality and safety to achieve that two is there are kind of institutional expectations um, which apply to you know at least some um, untoward incidents um, around you know what an investigation should look like the time scale during which it should take place who needs to be notified um, including you know uh, patients and families who might well have a reasonable expectation to be notified and also other bodies, be they, um, uh, you know, inspectors or uh, commissioners or whoever else. So quite often there is a need to fulfill certain institutional expectations about how you go about an, in an incident investigation. But even if you've got to, you know, follow through with those procedures, even if you've got to have a report that is filed for accountability at the end of it, there's nothing to stop you from pursuing parallel approaches uh, like that and that of course may not just involve the clinicians involved it may well involve patients and families as well because they will have perspectives they have a legitimate stake in understanding what was going on and certainly that kind of um 
forum. I hesitate to say safe space because that has certain legal connotations, but you know, a space in which there are clear, there's clear understanding about the purpose of it. There's clear understanding that um, this is primarily about learning and not about blame. Okay, accountability can't be got rid of completely, and as we've said, it shouldn't necessarily be gotten rid of completely. But if you can set up those kinds of expectations, then you can have very, very different conversations that can be much, much more productive, particularly for improving and trying to prevent similar occurrences in the future. I'm really glad that you brought up uh, patients and families because their voice is so important. So I think on that note, I want to introduce Susanna Stamford, um, who I had the pleasure of interviewing, who is a, a, a patient and an expert by experience. So we'll have a listen to my interview with Susanna. So I'm Susanna Sanford. In 2010, I had experience as a patient having a C-section for my second son. Unfortunately, the spinal anaesthetic failed, which was very traumatic. Um, it wasn't a failure of, of technical skills. And subsequently, I became really interested in non-technical skills and human factors. And also because of my experience working to achieve learning, which isn't straightforward, I became very interested in the system and cultural factors which get in the way of achieving learning. Within the actual procedure and the operation, um, I was, um, the point where I had difficulty was the testing of the block. It was not clear to me that it was working. Um, I would say that when you're lying flat on an operating table, that is the ultimate experience of an authority gradient. You mm. have placed yourself in the care of the people looking after you. You have to trust them because you can't, you know, you wouldn't be there otherwise. Um, so you've handed yourself over at such a huge level that it's actually really difficult to voice concerns. Mm. And particularly if you have someone who, um, you know, rightly is giving the impression of confidence that something's working. Um, they have the expertise, the skill, the knowledge, and you don't. So that's a very, very tough situation in which to speak up. And if you are then not listened to, that then becomes really problematic. And when you look at um, outcomes in terms of people's experience of trauma, it's a really strong compounding factor if people experience not being listened to. So that's mm. within the operating operation. Um, afterwards, um, the really interesting thing was that my notes weren't correct when they went to my GP. I got a discharge note that said that I'd had a routine C-section under regional. It made no mention of the general, which would have at least been a clue to her that something hadn't been straightforward. So it was 10 months later that I actually went to my GP and went, I'm really struggling. I need to understand what happened. You know, and she's pulled the, the discharge note up and I was literally able to see it on her screen. And of course it wasn't right. Mm. And we had a conversation. And even at that point, I was really, really clear that I just wanted to know what happened. And, and I wanted, if possible, to give constructive feedback. Mm -hmm. um, and interestingly, when she wrote to the hospital, she put that in. So she explicitly said, Susanna does not want to raise a complaint. She wants to offer constructive feedback so that the same doesn't happen again. Mm. You know, so she was really clear. I'd been clear. She'd been clear. And yet, even so, that still met 
with the you know, kind of the stone wall of you know, essentially a denial. And the phrase that was used was that I had been conscious and comfortable at the time my son was born. Well, obviously, had I been comfortable, I wouldn't have ended up having a general. I think it's the first time I've heard someone speak with such candor about being a patient within that hierarchical system and about the vulnerability that you feel as a patient. We've we've talked in this episode, and you are somewhat of an expert on this, about the idea of uh, no-blame culture and psychological safety. In your mind as a patient and, and an expert on this, are those two things one and the same? Okay, I hesitate to be called an expert on, on anything. <laughs> um, no blame and psychological safety have a great deal of overlap. Um, within no blame, so yeah, a blame culture is one where the immediate reaction is to look for someone to blame. The difference with no blame is that you're trying to look at what happened rather than who was responsible. That still saying no blame still kind of anchors it to the concept of blame, even if you're trying to talk about the absence of it. And I think it was James Reason who came up with the phrase just culture, mm. um, wherein you're developing a, a culture within, wherein trust enables reporting to occur. And the focus is on facilitating learning to drive safety improvement. Okay. Obviously, if you have an environment where it is a blame culture, you know, that's not a psychologically safe environment for people mm. to be working in. Um, the difference with psychological safety, so it comes. So let me use some like some statements. Okay, so if you in both a just culture and with psychological safety, you could say, if I make a mistake on this team, it will not be held against me. Okay, psychological safety goes further than that, because with psychological safety, you could say. I can ask questions without looking stupid. I can ask for feedback without seeming incompetent, for example. Or you could say, uh, people on my team are able to discuss difficult issues constructively, right? Or you could say, I do not think that anyone on my team would behave in a way which would deliberately undermine me. And that's coming quite a long way from our original concept, I think. Um, you cannot just declare that you have psychological safety. You know, that's, that's not it. You know, it's, it has to be borne out every day in the way that people behave to everybody around them. And it, that's because it's about shared values. We, one of the things that we're really keen on in this podcast when we talk about things like this is we do a lot, you know, and I'm... I am sure you you more than anyone probably appreciate how much we do this in healthcare. This idea of, of sort of admiring the problem and saying, oh, yes, this is a problem that happens. Oh, human factors is bad. Or we don't communicate. We don't listen to people. In terms of moving forward and thinking about how we could do things better. So people listening to this podcast as junior consultants or trainees or even senior consultants. I mean, God, I hope they are listening out there. Um, what can we do to change this? What can we do to make this better across the board? So around this concept of psychological safety, um, if we sort of take this as being really key for patient safety and clinician safety, and if you, you know, I would be really clear that those two things are 
irrevocably connected. They are two sides of the same coin. You're never going to have one without the other. Okay. Um, I think you have to model the behaviors you want to see within teams. Consultants will have a greater impact through the behaviors they demonstrate. But actually, you know what? Anyone can help, help create psychological safety. Um, there's a brilliant book called Fearless Organizations by Amy Edmondson. And, and in it, she comments that sometimes all you have to do is to ask a good question. And she would define you know, a good question as being something that is motivated by genuine curiosity or by the desire to give somebody voice. Mm. And by using such a question, you are conveying your input is important to me. And that acts, that's not between just two people, that is observed, okay? And it is observed by other people in the team and it is observed by patients, well, provided they're conscious, but it is observed by patients. You know, patients are observing the behavior all the time, don't forget that. So, so you're creating space for input, you're creating space for those questions and yet you're just setting the tone um, and the flip side of that is, you know, you've also got to be listening. They're really listening and listening builds rapport. It communicates respect. And I said, so that's part of it too. But, you know, it's really quite basic to me. And I've, it makes me laugh because I don't think the word is actually used in the entire of, of Amy Evans's book. Because for me, it's about kindness. Mm. And, you know, if we want to bring the best out of the people who are around us. We need to be kind. What I really liked from what Susanna said is that hospitals can't just declare you're psychologically safe. I think what's really fundamental, and this goes back to what we were saying at the beginning, is that psychological safety is something that really manifests at a micro level, at a local level, at the level of a team. Um, and it's one of those things that, you know, you sort of know it if you have it. And regardless of whether people say this is psychologically safe or this isn't psychologically safe, if you work in a team, you will know what the kind of the, the informal unwritten rules of the game are. You will know whether people are happy to speak up, to express concerns, to be informal with each other, to, to joke and things like that, actually, you know, or whether interactions within a team are very formal, very hierarchical. People know again when to keep their heads down. People know what is not permitted to say. So it comes out of all of those um, interactions that build up over time. And, you know, team members may come and go, but actually the spirit of the team is, is likely to stay quite similar, whether it encourages um, psychological safety and whether it encourages people to speak up with concerns, suggestions for improvement, or whether it doesn't. It's very likely that um, within a team, some people are going to be more influential on that psychological safety than others. So certainly a lot of responsibility does fall to leaders within a team. And, you know, if you're a junior doctor, then you're not a leader yet, but you're going to be a leader one day. Um, so, you know, there's there's plenty to be learned, I think, from a, from a team as to what is what is good practice, what is good role modeling and what's what's not. Um, having said that though, there's teams are more than their leaders, so there's plenty to be done 
regardless of your status within a team, regardless of your situation. And again, it comes back to something that um, I think we've heard to some extent from from both interviewees that that um, everyone has a voice in everyone's behavior influences the behavior of everyone else. So there are things that you can do. Um, Susanna was talking about opening up um, conversations, asking the right questions, basically, you know, encouraging um, conversations that, that bring people in. So, you know, there, there's, there's, there's quite um, simple things that can be done to sort of try to, to bring in people who seem to be marginalized, being attentive to each other's behavior. Listening was another thing that uh, Su- Susanna really emphasized. Um, yeah. You talk about feeling psychologically safe and that you get a feeling if your team is psychologically safe or not. Um, and I, I did anthropology for a year when I was at uni. Um, and one of the things I learned from anthropology was that a lot of things that we feel or we kind of know as humans, you can actually kind of study and break down into rules and that they're not always universal rules. So an example I always come back to you is um, if someone buys you a pint when you're at the pub, you buy them a pint back because that's gift-giving culture. And, and you know, in the UK, um, gift-giving culture is, is very central. So you, if someone buys you a pint at the pub and you don't buy one back, that's rude. But that doesn't, that culture is not universal. That doesn't exist in every society. And um, the measure in anthropology of uh, those rules and those things that, that create that culture is ethnography. Um, if I was to go into, um, let's say, the NHS or, or indeed any healthcare setting and to do an ethnography, are there certain cultural rules that exist that create psychological safety and and can you measure that or is that always going to just exist as as a sort of feeling do you think so the short answer is that you can measure um things like psychological safety themes things like team culture and that people have come up with instruments for doing that so you know there, there are safety culture measures for example safety climate measures and what they tend to rely on is um, people's perceptions of safety. So questionnaire instruments and the like. And you can use them to sort of track progress through time and and see how things are changing. I think, you know, a a lot of it, as you say, you do intuit. You you, you get a sense of what is right to say, what is appropriate to say, and what's simply frowned upon. Um, And, you know, as you've said, ethnographic research really tries to get into that stuff that's, that's, that's not obvious that perhaps can be measured, but perhaps when measurement doesn't do the issue full justice. And if you're going to understand a culture with a view to changing it, then you really need to get that intimate sense Mm. of of what's going on, all the unwritten rules, all the unspoken rules, the things that aren't even cognitively known that are just implicit Mm. um, that, uh, you know, team members don't know that they know, even though they're they're reproducing them all the time. Mm. And I think that, that makes me think of the other thing that really struck me from what Susanna said, which is about, which is what, you know, we ended the interview with was it's all about kindness. Um, and I think on the face of it initially, um, I don't know what your initial feeling on it's all about kindness was, um, but mine certainly was, oh yeah, okay, that makes sense. You know, if we were just nicer to each other, then we'd feel psychologically safe kindness what's not to like about kindness we should all be kind um, and i think there's a bit of truth in that and there's some really good um 
uh, campaigns basically in and around the NHS. I'm not sure if you come across Civility Save Lives. And again, yeah. being civil, absolutely. We should be respectful. We should listen to each other. We should try um, not to rebuke each other inappropriately. We should not try not to be short with each other. I think in one of your recent episodes, um, Mary Dixon Woods talks about snarkiness and what a chilling yeah. effect again that that can have on, um, yeah, on things like psychological safety and whether people are happy to speak up or not. I think where I would differ slightly from Susanna is, um, well, no, I suspect we'd agree on this, but I suppose what you have to be careful about when it comes to kindness is that it doesn't get too comfortable. Mm. So it'd be very easy for kindness to translate into reluctance to challenge, uh, even deference, particularly, you know, deference between people who have different social status. So deference up that, um, uh, you know, up that authority gradient. So kindness is good. Civility is good. But actually the real challenge, I think, is to combine kindness, civility, respect with robustness and actually a consciousness of what the standards are and what we shouldn't let slip. Um, you know, the standard that you walk past being the standard that you accept and all of that kind of thing. And really the, the trick to us, and again, this came up in the episode, I think when um, Zoe and Mary were talking about this, is to find ways of making it possible to have those slightly difficult, slightly awkward slightly threatening conversations because if you're shying away from those it's so easy to do but if you're shying away from those then you're not going to have a safe organization and actually that's not what psychological safety is either psychological safety is being able to confront those difficulties so i think it's kindness but kindness accompanied by um, a willingness to challenge and a willingness really to sort of you know see through your commitments, see through your obligations as a professional, even if that does mean getting into difficult conversations, uncomfortable situations at time. Mm. I really challenged, um, I mean, I could have spoken to Bob Claybo when I interviewed him all day about this, um, because I, I think my understanding before I interviewed him was that kindness is the same as niceness. Um, and yeah, I mean, he challenged my perception of that and I challenged his a little bit, I think. Um, and now I think, well, the kind thing to do is not just to let that person continue to be snarky at everyone because it's not kind to patients because the outcome is not going to be good. And it's not kind to myself and it's not kind to that person because maybe they don't realise they're behaving like that. Um, and it's, you know, it's so much easier to stay quiet. Um, Isn't it just, Yeah so much easier to stay quiet and of course once you stay quiet once it becomes all the harder not to be quiet the next time if you've tolerated something that wasn't quite right the first time then what's so different about the second time and that's you know again it goes back to concepts you've explored in past episodes that is how problematic cultures become normalized how they reproduce themselves so actually yeah you owe it to yourself you owe it to the people around you and above all you owe it to patients to take those chances, to take those psychological risks and a psychologically safe environment will make that just a little bit easier. Okay, I think that's a good point to wrap up on. Thank you very much to Graham for joining us and we're looking forward to having you back again soon. I also want to thank our guests, Susanna Stamford and Joe Wright. That's it for this episode. You can find the rest of our episodes on Apple Podcast or Spotify or all major podcast apps. While you're there, please do rate and review us. I'm Clara Monroe and this is Doctor Informed. Thanks for listening. <laughs>